and welcome to Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick of Merrick Law. We're joined today by a very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Hi, Kim. How are you doing? Well, Heather, as, as you pointed out before we jumped on the podcast, I changed my background after two years of us filming podcasts. I finally dragged my butt back into the downtown core, and this is my, well, a portion of my office. <laughs> oh, so well, that's, that's exciting. I thought maybe you just took a snap of your office and you were using that as your background now. In you Zoom. know, that's actually a great idea to trick <laughs> people, but I actually am not in my jam <laughs> and I'm back in the office. Not a bad idea, Heather. Mm, I like well, where you're going with that. You know, something to, something to think about. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that we've just been joined by our other co-host, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hi, Evan. How are you doing? Hey, guys. I'm doing good. Sorry for just dropping in like this. I was like uh, on earlier with Kim and really enjoying it. I was, first of all, totally shocked by what I saw. I was confused. I was like, what is this new background? Same printer, but different background. And uh, then I had like a client emergency. So I had to like just disappear without telling her anything. So I'm back. Okay. Well, welcome back. Um, I am very, very excited to Welcome our very special guest today, too. Uh, hi, Darren. We've got Darren Hopel here. Hi, Darren. How are you doing? Hi. Uh, again, thanks for having me. And uh, good to connect with uh, Kim and uh, Heather again. And um, nice to meet you, Evan. Yeah, nice to meet you. Evan, you're the only one who doesn't know Darren. This is your this brief is introduction. Like, yeah, this is like almost every episode. I'm the only one that doesn't know the person. Except, you know, once in a while I bring someone on and, and you guys don't know, but no, it's great. And that way, like, by the way, Darren, that's a great um, endorsement if Kim and Heather both like you. <laughs> okay. I don't know if they like me, but I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> we sure do. We sure do. Uh, so, Darren, I understand you're a chartered business valuator. You're a certified financial planner, a licensed commercial real estate appraiser, and you also have a Canadian investment manager designation, um, as well as being a certified fraud examiner. So, lots of expertise in the financial area. Um, what are you going to talk to our guests about today? Well, I, I guess uh, um, what I, I thought I would do um, is maybe talk about the world of uh, fraud examination and uh, 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 talk about the association that um, basically trains fraud examiners what fraud examiners are and uh, what what um, I guess the different types of occupational fraud there is out there and um, for people practicing family law, um, what are you know some what what are some uh, things to look out for when you're reviewing financial disclosure and uh, and that kind of thing. So um, yeah, so that that's what I I thought would be a, a good uh, good area to uh, focus on. 
And I guess before we launch into the nuts and bolts of that, how did you become interested in fraud? When I saw this expertise in your background, I was super excited <laughs> to talk to you about it. But how did you come to this topic and to learn so much about it? Yeah, so it, it's kind of a long story, but in um, in my previous life, uh, when I was a university student, I actually studied uh, criminology, and I actually was also uh, uh, I was a, I was a police cadet for three years. I was a, a sergeant uh, or staff sergeant of the Edmonton uh, Police Cadet Group, and I, I actually worked for the city police. Uh, for two summers in their parks division. And um, and I, I got to learn actually a lot about law enforcement in those years. And uh, so, and then I, I, I kind of, uh, I, I switched majors into business uh, when I was in university. And uh, I kind of left that background, um, uh, you know, I left, left that in the rear view mirror. And, um, you know, just before the pandemic, uh, I ended up being referred to a file. Um, it was a uh, uh, um, one of my one of my lawyer uh, clients um, had a had a client who had his controller um, take about five hundred thousand dollars from him, give or take. It was it was pretty significant, and um, the RCMP were involved, uh, and the RCMP. Um, basically said, well, you should get a forensic accountant. And um, I worked in an, an office of accountants and I, I, I prepare, you know, my whole career has been, well, for the last 15 years has been preparing expert reports. And I thought, well, I've always prepared reports for civil, civil, civil litigation matters, but I've never really prepared reports for criminal situation. So this would have been a first. And anyway, it never ended up uh, going anywhere, but it really got me thinking about, you know, my background, my, you know, in, uh, you know, criminology and also my, my finance background that you pointed to. And so I, I ended up taking, um, uh, when the pandemic rolled up, rolled into town, I thought this is a great opportunity to you know, update my professional credentials a little bit. And I'm, you know, at that time, it looked like I was going to have a lot of time on my hands. So I took a couple courses through Algonquin College in uh, forensic accounting, and then uh, ended up enrolling in the uh, uh, CFE program. And uh, it took me about a year, I, I started that in the spring of 2020. And then I, I, I took the four exams and, and got my, my my accreditation in the summer of 2022. So that's kind of what kind of got me into, it was partly because I had the time because of uh, we we're all shut in for a while and I thought it would be a good, um, a good time to do something like that. And then also just the, the blend of my background in, you know, from university and criminology and my finance background, it really seemed like a good, uh, a good, you know, like a good uh, crossroads, uh, that program. And I actually found it, I found the program very interesting. Um, uh, basically, there's, there is four, um, there, uh, well, I'll just back up the uh, uh, Association of Certified uh, Fraud Examiners is a, 
is a really, it's a large organization. I think there's about 70,000 members um, across the world. It's an international. And the, the whole program uh, uh, was really well put together. Um, it involved, a, you know, there was all kinds of chat groups that you could get in and network with literally people from all over the world, from all kinds of different backgrounds. And uh, what you really find in that, it, you know, with the other students that were involved is really, really diverse backgrounds. Like you had a lot of people who were accountants and carried guns to work. <laughs> and you had uh, people uh, that work at banks and insurance companies that are susceptible to fraud and, uh, you know, really monitoring their, um, you know, what, you know, the activity. Uh, you had uh, police officers, uh, internal auditors, uh, like people like these sole practitioners. And there's a number of CBDs in Canada that are also fraud examiners. And uh, so basically the, the course is uh, administered in four parts. There's um, uh, one part is uh, financial transactions and fraud schemes. And that, you know, there's a lot, you know, quite a bit of accounting and financial statement analysis in that section. And then, which was uh, new and then laying out the fraud tree, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second and the, you know, the different schemes that are out there. And then there was a, a portion on law and it was a little different than I think you would take in Canada because the student body is from all over the world. So there's, you know, people from different, um, you know, different legal uh, uh, paradigms, but, you know, they, they, they broke down what the, you know, uh, what the issues are in fraud examination and the law. Uh, then there was a, a section on investigations and uh, which involved like how you plan a, a fraud investigation um, all the way through to how you collect evidence, um, you know, collecting digital evidence, uh, how you interview people, how you, how you uh, interview people with, uh, with the intent of getting a, an admission of, 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 uh, of, of wrongdoing. Uh, so, and then the, the other one was uh, the last one, the last module was on uh, prevention and deterrence. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are in-house uh, fraud examiners are, they're looking to protect their businesses from, from fraud, fraud, which is a, it's a huge deal. Like you just, uh, if you read the papers, um, you know, uh, like every day you're hearing organizations that are getting built out of millions and millions of dollars. So it's a, it's a huge problem in, in, in our world, um, you know, on, on many levels. So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of how, um, uh, that un uh, evolved and, um, yeah. So, so what I thought I would do is I, I do have the, um, did you did you get those exhibits that I sent you? We sure did. Yes. Are you are you able to um, uh, are you able to post them or do you want me to do that? We can screen share them for sure, Darren. We okay. Can get those up. So, um, I, I what did uh, again the. Uh, uh, what we're talking about is occupational uh, occupational fraud um, and occupational fraud. Um, I'll give you the exact definition. Uh, it's defined as the use of one's occupation for personal enrichment through the deliberate misuse or 
uh, misapplication of the employing of an organizer's resources or assets. Uh, simply stated, occupational frauds are those in which an employee, manager, officer, or an owner of an organization commits a fraud to the organization's de detriment. And that's, that's, uh, that's uh, the definition of organizational uh, fraud. Uh, and within the, uh, uh, what you've just put up there is, um, this is something that, uh, this is a, an exhibit from the uh, ACFE fraud manual. And what it is, it's the fraud tree in it really classif uh, classifies uh, three types of um, uh, occupational fraud. Uh, one is, uh, you know, the first one is corruption. And, and, and basically what corruption is, it's a, a situation where an employee uh, misuses his or her influence in a business transaction in a way that violates her duty uh, to the employer in order to gain a direct or indirect benefit. Mm. Um, the other category is asset mis uh, uh, misappropriation, and, and this is a, a scheme where an employee steals or misuses uh, the assets or resources for, uh, for an organization. And the, the, uh, I guess what I thought we'd talk about uh, mostly is uh, financial statement fraud. And actually, financial statement fraud, in terms of uh, in terms of the if you were to quantify the losses, this is where the biggest money gets lost. Um, if if you look in the stock market, for example, Tim would be familiar with this. You know, if you if you look back, um, you know, for example, in year two thousand, you saw companies just blow right up because of uh, fraudulent activity. You know, if you look at Nortel and Enron, all these companies uh, where there was just uh, billions of dollars of, of market capitalization wiped out um, was because of financial statement fraud. And oh. so in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of the number of frauds that happen, you probably see more asset misappropriate um, uh, fraud, but they tend to be smaller, you know, people ripping off their employer, employer for a hundred bucks or taking a little bit of money from the till or whatever. But generally speaking with financial statement uh, fraud, um, you can have losses that are, 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 are huge. So in uh, what financial, the definition of financial uh, statement fraud, it's the deliberate misrepresentation of the financial uh, condition of an enterprise accomplished through the in intentional misstatement or omission of amounts or disclosures in the financial statements to deceive financial statement users. So like, kind of so, like Nort Nortel? 100%. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so uh, um, there's another one, uh, another um, uh, slide like this where I just have the uh, uh, the fraud tree for financial statements, and maybe maybe pull that one, and, and we'll we'll maybe talk about that, and we'll talk about I guess financial statement fraud in the context of uh, you know uh, what to look for in uh, uh, in in your practice when you're reviewing. Um, uh, financial statements and some things to be aware of. So, um, I think when you're um, you're probably uh, in your in your law practices, you're probably often given financial statements for um, you know for 
you know, for figuring out child support or property man, um, um, matters. And when you, uh, when you get financial statements, I think one of the uh, first thing you want to do is identify what kind of financial statements you're getting. Um, there's, there's three types of financial statements that are really differentiated based on the level of assurance that's provided in, in, in the, uh, 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 in the, in the statement in the responsibility and how much, uh, corroboration the accountant has done when he's issued the statements. So the first, uh, uh financial statement that you off, that is, it's probably 80%. I don't know what the percentages are, but most of the time, that's what I'm I'm coming across is is notice to readers, uh-huh. and or they, they actually call them compilations now. They've uh, changed the names, and some of the uh, the, the standards for those uh, financial statements have changed. But really, uh, with a with a compilation financial statement, the accountant has done nothing to corroborate the information. Uh, it's it's you know his client gives them the information. And they don't do a lot of third-party verification. They don't. They don't do any auditing. Uh, it's basically garbage in, garbage out. Now, if 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 all the information is presented properly to the accountant, uh, and uh, uh, fi- uh, accounting principles are are followed, you should end up with the same uh, you know same financial statements. Uh, but you know sometimes that happens and sometimes it don't. You just have to be aware of the the level of assurance that's being provided. Uh, the second Darren, type of... Sorry, can I interrupt for just one second? Um, sure, and yes. just to back you up for one moment before we go on with the next level of assurance. For our listeners who aren't familiar with the concept of a financial statement, can could you let them know in a sentence or two what is a financial statement of a company? Yeah, so... Um, the, so a financial statement is 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 uh, has usually two parts. Is there's a, a balance sheet, and what a balance sheet is, it's uh, on your left hand side. It's your assets, and then on the right hand side, it's how those assets are paid for. So on, on and you have basically uh, the assets are paid for either through borrowing from a bank or another third party or the equity that the uh, um, that, that is there. So if you, if you have, let's say you have a simple company, all it has is a house with a mortgage. So you'd have the house on the, the left side of the balance sheet. And then on the right hand side, you would have the mortgage and the down payment. So you have your liabilities and equity, how the right side is paid for. They have and then to be on the, the same. Other- they have to be the same. That's why it's a balance sheet. The, the number at the bottom has to be the same, right? Yeah. Or, if if they don't, you have to you, you got to ask some questions. But ideally, yeah, they should they should uh, the right and the left should equal, right? And uh, and then the other statement that you'll have is an income statement, and that that uh, so a balance sheet is taken at a point in time where the income statement is uh, the performance the fi- financial performance of the organization over a period of time. So what you'll have on the top line is your your revenues, your sales. And then you'll have your, usually your cost of sales, which is your, if you're making something, your materials, your direct wages, and then uh, you have your gross profit. And then below that, you have your fixed expenses, like your rent and your insurance, and then gets you to your net profit. And, and, and those are 
basically in a nutshell what your typical financial statements include. Okay, so what a company owns, what they owe, and what they're earning, more or less. Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly what it is, and it's uh, uh, and and so when you go to an accountant, they uh, like I said, they prepare the financial statements, um, you know, based on different levels of assurance, and the level of assurance is often dependent on who the users are. So in a lot of, in most small companies, um, typically the users are Revenue Canada. They, they, they're, they're basically preparing those financial statements for filing their taxes and that's it. So there's no, there's no uh, they're, they're not really concerned about shareholders. They're just um, usually uh, provide, you know, preparing the financial statements for filing taxes. Um, when you get into the next level of, of uh, financial statements, you get into what's called a review. And typically, a, a, a company is required to provide a reviewed financial statements when they're going to a bank. So in the case of uh, an organization that's borrowing money from the bank, the bank wants some assurance that there's been some questions asked about the financial statements. And... Uh, the the uh, accountant who's preparing them has to do a little bit more due diligence uh, in 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 preparing them and, and providing the the financial statements. And then the the third level, which is in my world it, and probably in your world, it's very rare. Um, typically, companies that get audits are are public companies, uh, companies where there's multiple shareholders tend to be larger. I guess nonprofit uh, companies uh, typically have to get uh, audits as well. But those are the, the three levels. And what happens in an audit is, is uh, basically they, you know, they, um, they, they do testing to make sure that all the accounts are recorded properly and there's some third-party verification of the uh, of the statements and in an opinion, uh, usually there's an opinion that's provided that the the financial statements have been audited and are prepared in uh, in, in with uh, in conformance with uh, accounting principles. Hmm. Okay. Darren, you kind of made it sound like uh, accounting principles are are sort of a rules based system and pretty easy to follow. But every once in a while, we hear about big firms. More like more recently, KPMG was in the news about potentially a lawsuit filed against them for bridging finance. And I'm just wondering how, if the accountants are following the rules, how do they get themselves into hot water um, in their reporting of these financial statements? Yeah, um, they're people. <laughs> <laughs> well, like Kraft Heinz got in trouble not too long ago, right? You know about this, Kim? No, I, I'm excited to learn. Uh, I want to say it was like last quarter or something, or, or maybe it was longer than that, whatever. They, they were overvaluing some assets, including the goodwill. This was, this was post-merger when they craft and Heinz used to be separate and they joined together. And so anyways, they were overvaluing that asset of goodwill, which appears on the balance sheet. And, you know, because of, and for craft Heinz, they've got tons of really, really well-known brands that they, both of those brands had owned and, and now owned together. And um, so they got in a little bit of trouble 
and um, got the wrist slapped, got some penalties, I think. And uh, Darren, are you, do you know, am I the only one here that knows about this particular instance? I don't, uh, but you know, the, um, when I started in this profession as a CBB, it was around 2003 and it was uh, shortly after WorldCom or, uh, or it was Enron blew up. And uh, one of the, at that time they made a, a they brought in the IFRS, the uh, International Financial Reporting Standards. And mm. what happened at that time is, is exactly what you said. There was, there was a lot of off balance sheet liabilities that were not, they didn't show up on the, on the financial statements. And so nobody saw uh, them like, like what was happening. And it actually, that, that, um, that app, like that um, event created a lot of, it was a boon for our profession because what ended up happening is um, they made it a requirement for financial reporting that goodwill be measured uh, for financial statements uh, regularly. And so it, it uh, and at that time, a lot of people were really getting into this profession because the, um, uh, the accounting firms were all doing uh, valuations on. So for example, if you worked at, if KPMG was auditing a company, they would hire Ernst and Young to kind of test their, or quantify their, the goodwill on their, their balance sheet. And that didn't happen before. So there was kind of a, mm. a uh, for a while there, there was, there was kind of a push towards, um, you know, having valuators more involved in the financial reporting process uh, in order that assets that are on balance sheets could be um, you know, reported at, at fair values. And, uh, yeah, so that's, um, you know, that, it, it, and, and when you hear these things happen, these, these big blowups, uh, they tend to be pretty big. Like we're not talking a couple hundred dollars disappearing from the, the till it's, you know, uh, huge, huge amounts of money that, that gets, uh, you know, white, white, wiped right out. So it's, uh, uh, and that's why I said, like earlier, of, of the three types of or class or classes of occupational fraud, financial uh, statement fraud by far is the the one that has the where the biggest losses happen. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I thought what I'd do is uh, kind of talk about some things to look at in financial statements and uh, understanding that the, you know, the limitations of the very, and, you know, the compilation reports or compilation financial statements and understanding that, you know, in, in most cases, the, these numbers aren't independently verified. So uh, sometimes you have to be aware of that, not just take things that are in there at face value. So the, um, uh, I think I've got a, uh, another slide. I can't remember if I, Oh yeah. I, I put on that. You put on that slide before the, the, the category or the categories of financial statement fraud, they kind of fall into five buckets. And, uh, one of them is improper asset valuations is kind of like what we talked about before. And, uh, I'll just give you a little story on, uh, I was, uh, doing a, a valuation and there was a competing valuation and it was really simple company just hold held a bunch of equipment and there was actually a helicopter that they the, that was owned by the uh this company and that's all it owned and you think oh it's pretty simple 
And I think what you see is like a lot of people say, okay, well, the value of this company is just, it's just retained earnings or it's just assets minus liabilities. A problem with that is the, on a, on a financial statement, you have the assets recorded at book value, which basically, basically means it's cost minus an allowance for depreciation. And the value goes down over time um, according to a formula. But a lot, of a, a lot of assets don't go down in value. In fact, they go up in value. And in this particular case, uh, we saw pieces of equipment that uh, after, like, after the fact, we knew they were sold for significantly more than the book values, right? So when you're seeing like the property and equipment schedule on a notice to read or financial statement, you really have to uh, look at what those assets are and, and, uh, and figure out whether or not, you know, book value is a really good proxy for those assets. And I think even now today, um, you know, I'm hearing people, for example, if you, if you want to buy a pickup truck, it's really expensive. So, you know, if somebody bought a pickup truck three or four years ago, for accounting, it's probably, it's probably worth next to nothing, or it's probably half of what they paid for it. But in reality, it probably is, you know, it's probably it would sell for probably more than what they paid for it. So you always have to, you know, be careful of, you know, and, and a lot of, a lot of business in, in a lot of business evaluations, we make that assumption that the book value is equal to fair market value. And I think you just, that's one thing you have to be careful with, right. And that's where you can be led astray with, uh, with financial reporting. I have uh, a quick question on this, and maybe it applies more generally too. Is is there an element of intention here? Um, uh, if you're reporting it at book value, but you're not aware that that asset has appreciated, I mean, that might be part of your business. You're supposed to know that, but maybe you just don't know that there's been a huge surge in the <laughs> in the price of helicopter parts. Yeah. Um, is, is there a subjective element to that and like the intention of fraud? No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I... Um... I, I, when I'm, uh, when I'm talking about fraud and uh, misstatement of financial statements, maybe I'm not, uh, maybe they're, they can, like, there can be fraud when there's misstatement, but sometimes it's just, uh, this is following the accounting rules, but it's not uh, accurately reflecting the value or financial position of the company. Uh, if, that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's why, that's why, I mean, you have to be careful with financial statements and understand what the rules are. Mm -hmm. And the rules could lead you down the wrong road because book value and fair market value of an asset might not even be close. Mm. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and it, you'll, you'll see that. Like I see that often. And, um, another, another case, another thing that you'll see is, um, when somebody buys an asset, uh, what they can often do, they're, they're motivated to treat it as an expense rather than put it on their uh, balance sheet and capitalize it. And the reason is, is they, they can write that off for, for taxes. So it just, you know, goes, oh, equipment, we, we bought a computer, just, you know, just expense it, right? But it should actually go on, on to their balance sheet and get capitalized. And the problem with doing that is like if, if, if you're not, if 
if you're capital or if you're expensing items that should be capitalized, your company has a lot more assets than what you're actually reporting. So people typically try and expense a lot more than they capitalize for tax reasons. And it might not be de deliberate to create fraud, but what happens is you get a distorted, uh, you know, your balance sheet becomes distorted because half of the assets that the company owns is not on the balance sheet. And right. I'm, I'm dealing with this in, in one case in an arbitration right now where like this, uh, this company has no inventory or no assets. And I know they have that, like they have to have that, but that's just the way the accounting's been done. So, I mean, you have to ask those questions and find out what do you actually, what act, assets do you actually use in this business? Right. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so that's, you know, that's a case where you have, you know, the assets that the company owns aren't really, they're not really re uh, reported properly on the balance sheet. And uh, you'll see that, you'll see that a lot. Like you, that's something that you see kind of regularly. Um, the other, the other uh, type of uh, financial statement fraud is in, in, in improper disclosures. And a lot of times, you know, if a company is dealing with a, a related party, there should be a disclosure that they are dealing, you know, they've sold product or they've bought product from a party that's related. And then those, you know, the transactions happen at, you know, fair value. But in a, in a, in a compilation or a lower, you know, lower level assurance, you don't, you don't really get those disclosures, right? So who are the customers buying stuff or selling stuff? Are they related? And are these transactions actually happening at fair market value? And um, I was involved in a, another litigation matter where there was two companies and one was renting equipment from the other, but it was really kind of, well, you know, like you can set that rental rate at whatever you want and just kind of, move the profits back and forth between the two companies, right? right. In this case, there was disclosure on that. But in a lot of cases, you know, with uh, a compilation or a notice, uh, notice to reader, you know, you don't have that uh, requirement for, for disclosure, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and sometimes people set up shell companies. This is another uh, scheme where, you know, they'll set up a shell company, and uh, uh, there's a, actually a, a fraud that I, I know of um, from, from an account um, that I work with. And one of his clients, a relative, set up a shell company, invoiced the operating company out of the shell company. So no one, no one thought of it. And then they were just paying out this money to the shell company that was owned by somebody in the company, right? And uh, that actually, I think, happened to AMA. Um, hmm. Somebody set and 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 uh, defrauded AMA for you know for 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 millions of dollars over over a period of time by uh -huh. just creating fake vendors, right? So, uh -huh. uh, yeah. So in the you know uh, it's it, you know part of part of controls in it you know in, in deterring fraud is you want to set up an arrangement where you have approved vendors and nobody gets on that list until um, in, until there's uh, and until they've been approved as a vendor and met certain requirements. And I'm, I'm actually the, the treasurer for the collaborative law group. And that's what we do. After learning about this, I actually set up a vendor list. And so we can't, we can't electronically send money out to anybody in, until they're on that approved list. 
Oh, okay. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's, mm. a, it's a biggie when it's one that stinks. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, what about the, don't we often have government um, scandals based around, like I can think of Trudeau had some issues with the charity and we had Jean Chrétien have issues with some kind of government contract being awarded to somebody, some organization that, you know, wasn't exactly above board. And usually, uh, yeah. Isn't this that type of, is it, would that fit into that category or is that different or? Well, that's, that falls more into the corruption bucket uh, than the financial statement, uh, right. you know, uh, but the, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of using your, your position, um, you know, to be able to influence who gets contracts and take kickbacks and yeah. And the, we, the, we, uh, you know, paying out salaries to people who are related that may not be commensurate with what they do, like those kind of things. It's nice to know that it's nice to know that the government can commit fraud and basically get away with it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cause like last I checked, Jean Gretchen didn't go to jail and, uh, you, you know, and like, well, it was a big enough scandal that he stepped down as being prime minister and Paul Martin took over because of that scandal. Yeah. Well, you don't even have to look, uh, too far. Like, um, I think it was electric that just got sanctioned for a big rigging, a bid rigging. It was something to do with the, 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 the bidding system right. wasn't, wasn't uh, above board and they got awarded some contracts that, right. yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's common. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, just how contracts are awarded and, and, and those, uh, you know, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the word for it. Procurement fraud. Yeah. So the big organization is, is need service or government needs service. How do those contracts actually get, uh, you know, get awarded? And, you know, is there like, you know, is there, there's sometimes corruption around that, how contracts get awarded and, uh, okay. So it's a, it's a huge, uh, like fraud is a big universe and <laughs> we could, you could talk about all these things uh, in depth, but, you know, back to financial statements, you know, the, um, you know, the fourth, uh, fourth category of financial statement fraud is uh, fictitious or un- understated revenues. And um, I, again, you know, sometimes there's an incentive to either reduce revenues or increase revenues and, um, and, and the next thing is, which kind of talks about is about timing differences. So, you know, if I want to lower my income, uh, one of the things that in a particular period, one of the things I would be motivated to do is push my income into the next reporting period, right? So maybe sandbag, like, uh, you know, maybe, you know, just wait till, report. so expenses and the uh, the revenue and expenses don't align with the period that they're actually earned or, or spent, right? So, you know, one of the ways that you can kind of see that is, you know, like maybe a company, you know, they have all their, um, you know, they don't have, you know, any revenue for the last couple of months in their fiscal year. And then all of a sudden in the first part of the next year, like there's a huge, spike in their revenues for, un, for some, so that, you know, there's, you know, there's ways that people can, you know, massage 
the timing of revenue so it falls into different uh, different reporting periods. Uh-huh. And so again, your your financial your income statement isn't fairly reflecting the actual financial performance over that period. Huh. Is this is this why they've cre- somebody created that uh, business disclosure? I think it's called Sweeney or something like that, where where lawyers start to suspect that a business owner is maybe getting uh, creative with their money. So the business owners required to indicate their expenses, income, and provide a lot of disclosure. Is that where this all comes from? Yeah, that's, that's a little different, but it's related for sure. And, you know, because if, if you're, uh, and I guess that would talk about, uh, you know, um, uh, that's more like fictitious revenue and expenses. Cause you know, if you're looking at a company's financial statements, you would expect that all the expenses, that are reported are business expenses. But what happens is people, and we're all, if we're all proprietors, we, we probably all do this to a degree, is we'll throw our cell phone bill and we'll, you know, maybe put some mileage in there and, you know, maybe some hockey tickets and, you know, maybe some meals and entertainment. And some people are very, you know, some business owners are very, careful not to do that because they want the financial statements to be clean. But in other cases, people want to throw as much uh, personal stuff through their company financial statements as they can, because they're paying, they end up paying for personal expenses with pre-tax dollars. So rather than have, you know, if you have like, let's say a hockey tickets, hundred bucks. Well, if you pay for it through your company, it costs you a hundred bucks. But if you pay personally, you have to take like 160 out of your company, pay personal tax, and and then pay that hundred dollars. So there's an incentive to pay for these expenses through your company from a tax perspective. So the the Sweezy disclosure uh, is a is a requirement that people uh, outline their their any personal expenses that the company pays that confer a personal benefit onto them. And I, uh, yeah, you know, the Sweezy disclosure is an interesting one because it's, in theory, that's what should happen. People should disclose it, but I, I, I kind of find that it, it doesn't really happen. And I, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's tricky, but it's, it, a hassle. It's, a, it's a big deal. It's a hassle. Yeah, totally. It's and then they'll get their account. Yeah, and then they'll get their accountant to do it. Yeah, and their accountant wants nothing to do with it. Right. And the and, and the account doesn't really understand what we're looking for in the first place. Right. Yeah. So that's what it is. It's just like, okay, well, are these really business expenses? Are they, are they personal expenses that your company's paying for? And that's what that's what that disclosure is 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 trying to uh uncover. Um. So most of the time, I think uh, you know, most of the time it's somebody with just a small business. And most of the time it's like, in my experience, it's like, okay, add back the cell phone bill, add back the meals expenses, uh, maybe. And like, you know, a few other things, maybe their company's paying rent that could, that could happen. Right. They could live where their company office is located or something like they could, there's things that CRA will let them write off and they're, they're not offside CRA's rules but they're getting that personal benefit from, but usually it's not a huge amount in my experience, but we're talking like most of the cases, you get someone who's really sophisticated and is really trying to, you know, manipulate the situation, then 
or a, you know a, a company with with a lot of assets and a lot of revenue that is buying a lot of significant luxury items and holding them on the company's books, then that's a little bit of a different story. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, it's, it, you know, the, the little bit of common sense, um, you can kind of see, you know, like, uh, you know, somebody might only be taking $80,000 uh, personal income, but you can see that their lifestyle, you know, they, they go on a lot of trips and, you know, they, you know, seem to live, um, at a higher level than what the personal. And so in those cases, you can kind of recognize it, but you're right. It's tends to be smaller companies where there's kind of one owner, one owner. Uh, once you get into multiple owners, you see less of that because, um, you know, some, somebody, you know, the other partners wouldn't be too happy if right. one of the partners was using the company as a piggy bank. So generally it's, uh, your, your kind of owner, owner managed, you know, one shareholder type of companies where that really becomes an issue. And it can be, you know, I've, I've seen cases where it's significant enough yeah. that it, it makes it, it, it moves the needle on guideline income. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. So is there more good people than bad people or like in your, in your. It's oh, a very <laughs> philosophical question, Kim. Well, I just, I want a juicy bit. I want to know like our business owners in Edmonton, like fraudulent for the most part, or are they all trying to do the right thing? <laughs> well, you know, I guess like you always, uh, you know, sometimes I'm joint engaged, which is, is good. Uh, but you know, a lot of times you're, you know, well, and you know, from, uh, as uh, being lawyers, you, you, you're getting one side of the story, right? So, uh, yeah. And usually one's one party's mad at the other party. So you're, you're, you, you, you try not to get tainted and, um, you know, uh, with that perspective, but yeah, sometimes, you know, yeah. You know, sometimes people cheat, for sure. You know, it happens. Yeah. So um, I guess uh, what I also, you know, now that it, we've kind of touched on some of the types of financial statement fraud, um, I thought we'd kind of talk a little bit about ways that you can detect it. Mm. And um, do you have that? There is that. Um, one slide, and I think it was called, yeah, it's called vertical and horizontal financial analysis. Yes, we have that. It's it's somewhere, Darren. I'm I'm looking for it. Vertical and horizontal. It's actually a picture. Okay. Yeah. Here it is. Okay, now I just have to find it. There we are. Yeah. So what um what uh what uh, vertical and horizontal analysis is, it's expressing the income statement balance sheet items as percentages rather than dollar, dollar amounts. Okay, so you'll see uh, what, what, a hor- what a vertical analysis is. It refers to common, it, it, it's a practice of common sizing all the balance sheet accounts as a percentage rather than a dollar amount. Mm. And what that does is it allows you to, um, allows you, uh, um, uh, actually, I'm gonna back up. Uh, I'm gonna talk horizontal analysis first. So horizontal analysis allows for measure of per, uh, 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 changes in, in individual 
financial accounts from one period to the next. So you'll see like on this, um, uh, uh, on this horizontal analysis, what you have is it shows the percentage change in accounts from one period to the other. So for example, you can see this particular uh, company, it had a change in gross margin of 20%, right? From year one to year two. So what that allows you to do is see how things change. And uh, as you, uh, if you, what we typically do in evaluation or even a guideline income calculation is we, we, we express all the, all the uh, accounts as percentages and, or have the percentages beside them. And what it allows us to see is if, for example, we see meals and entertainment, it's usually like 1% of revenue and it jumps up to 10% of revenue. That's something that you drill down and ask about, right? Like, why is this, why is this, um, uh, why was there this, you know, big jump in this expense category over this period of time? Or why is your gross profit, like, because your gross uh, profit margin, you expect to be kind of constant, but when you see them jump up, uh, you know, or be really volatile, um, sometimes you have to ask questions. So doing the, uh, expressing the individual accounts as a percentage, it allows you to kind of benchmark uh, for one thing against companies that are in that industry. So for example, if you know, just as an example, electrical contractors or plumbing companies, typically they have a gross margin of 12% and your, your, uh, your, the company that you're looking at is a gross margin of 2%. Well, like what you can, you can kind of see where they're, where maybe this is an anomaly or certain categories of expenses are a lot higher or lower than what you would expect from the industry. It allows you to kind of, um, you know, gives you some tools or, uh, some, some way to kind of identify red flags. Um, what, do you, what do you do about black swan events like a pandemic? Cause it's going to screw up all your trends. Yeah, it does for sure. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that, that has made things a little bit more difficult for sure. And uh, so, you know, just because, you know, like a lot of things come from, uh, have come to a standstill and that, that's why, you know, I typically like to, you know, for like, especially in this period, look back as, as many years as you can, even before the pandemic to see kind of what the ratios were then versus now. And, uh, you know, sometimes there is good reason like business conditions change, but, you know, sometimes you'll see, you know, certain things, certain expense categories, meals and entertainment as an example, maybe this is, why is it all of a sudden gone way up or, you know, travel is now way up and you never had any travel before. So doing the, like that, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the horizontal or the vertical analysis allows you to see, you know, kind of how much is in each bucket and, you know, what, what's typical. And then uh, the horizontal analysis allows you to kind of look at the company over different reporting periods and, and see changes in those expense categories. And that gives you, you know, kind of gives you an indication if, uh, you know, there might be something wrong or, or just, you know, the reporting might not be uh, correct. And, you know, like I said, I, I was dealing with, um, you know, one company where I just knew that there had to be inventory and capital assets and they didn't show any. Right. So, so, you know, like the, the balance sheet's not right. Mm. 
you know, so, uh, so it can be used like this kind of analysis can be used for, um, you know, for benchmarking and, and again, looking at trends in the business, you know, over, over longer periods of time. Aaron, who would hire you to look at this type of stuff? Is it mostly in your line of work, family law lawyers, or you mentioned before that sometimes other accountants will, you know, reach out to another accountant to look things over and review. Like, where does your business come from? Um, you know, um, I, I guess uh, it, it, it changes all the time. Uh, you know, I, I, I have been doing, you know, in the last five years, family law has become a bigger and bigger part of my practice. So, um, you know, I, I, I have, you know, I, I would say maybe 50% of the work that I do is family law related, either valuations, uh, appraisals, or guideline income calculations. But I also do, uh, you know, I'm in, I've been involved with uh, different shareholder disputes, uh, a lot of times exiting exiting employees, uh, shareholder employees terminated without cause, you know, and, you know, that kind of thing, uh, you know, transact, just a commercial trans general, um, commercial transactions. I've done work for banks, you know, where they've, uh, asked me to do valuations. So, yeah, so that, yeah, it's not, um, you know, I think with the, uh, with guideline income there, you know, you have to look closely at the financial statements and, and how things are reported. Because, um, again, um, one of the things that I, uh, we don't, I think, look closely enough is at the cash flow statement of a company. And with a, with a compilation financial statement, uh, usually a cash flow statement is not included, right? But I actually think it's really important because... For example, you can have a company where, you know, the revenues are really going up and the income is going up, but the cash flow might not be coming in because, you know, their, you know, their accounts receivable is going up and their, uh, their cash is going down. And um, there was a, actually, it's a file that I'm working on right now is actually, I was a court appointed expert. And the issue was from the data separation to the data trial, the judge wanted to know you know, has there been money take removed from, in this instance, there was a few different companies. Uh-huh. Was there, was there money uh, or assets removed from the company? And you really wouldn't pick that up from the income statement, but you really could see that on a cash flow statement because the cash flow statement uh, records things like, you know, repayment of shareholder loan or, you know, uh, repayment of debt. Like for example, on a, on a income statement, the income statement doesn't take into account principal payments on debt. Right. But it's still the cash when the company's going down to pay that debt, but that's not recorded. The interest is recorded as an expense, but the principal payment is not. And the other thing is like capital assets. If a company buys a capital asset, you know, it, 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 it goes on their balance sheet and it's, it's kind of capitalized or, or capitalized over, over sometimes a long period of time. But there's a real outlay of cash at that point in time. So the, uh, the income statements don't really reflect what's actually happening to the cash of the company. Yeah. And so uh, I think sometimes it's valuable uh, using your balance sheet and income statement they have to kind of create a cash flow statement. 
So you can actually see what is happening with assets, with debt, uh, you know, repayment of shareholder loans, dividends, and, and so forth. Huh. So if I was a business owner and I was getting divorced and I Google how to hide assets and money from my spouse, <laughs> the, the question is, is it, you know, I'm going to pull up some good stuff maybe and some bad stuff. How, how easy it is, is it to get a, like to hide something from a guy like you? Like, is it next to impossible or is it possible? <laughs> Oh, I, um, and if, yeah, you know, how, yeah, I, well, it's, you know, the, you know, it kind of talks about that, that sweezy disclosure a little bit, you know, um, you know, it's how, you know, how much does a client really want me to drill down into this, you know, and obviously there's a cost to doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it becomes kind of like, I'm sure that there's a lot of stuff that, you know, people don't catch, you know, um, you know, I think, yeah, so it's, um, you know, I guess it, it just depends on, you know, the investment that somebody's willing to make to try and catch this, you know, catch something like that. And, uh, you know, does do the, you know, are, are, are they getting financial experts involved or, you know, what, what happens sometimes is people get their accountants to look at stuff and, you know, the accountants um, have a different training than I do. I'm actually not an accountant. Um, I, my training is completely different. Uh, hmm. So, but, you know, a lot of times accountants are the go-to for these kind of matters. And I, I, you know, sometimes they're the right people. Sometimes they're not. Right. So, um, you just hope. So if you're that, yeah. if you're hired, like if somebody's willing to spend the money to hire a professional, like we're probably going to uncover the CD stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, you should. And you know, you know, like if if we want to look at the general ledger and start asking questions, well, it's, it becomes a time consuming process, right? And so it becomes kind of like uh, again, what is the potential risk versus return of of going through kind of a uh, you know, kind of a forensic analysis and, you know, how much money are we talking about? And how certain are you that this is happening? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. sometimes you have to cut it off. Like if it is a, if it is a small company, are you going to catch every, you know, are you going to catch every little expense that's personal? Probably not, but you know, like what, how material is it? Right. Yeah. But you know, if, if the numbers are bigger then you know, you got to make that uh, a bit of a judgment call as to how much you want to, if you suspect something's wrong, uh, how much you want to invest to, you know, and how much time you want to commit to, uh, uh, you know, to, to figuring that out. Yeah. I, I, I've certainly had that conversation with clients before where they feel pretty certain that um, there's no assets now because their spouse has, you know, move them off shore somewhere else or, you know, done, given them to a sibling, whatever. And the documents that are provided to me, which aren't a huge amount, like we're talking six months of bank statements, right? So if it happened before that, I wouldn't see anything in the bank statements, but you know, I have that conversation where, okay, like they've provided a reasonable explanation as to why what you thought was there is not there 
what do you want to do about it? Cause you may be right. Like I can't sit here and tell you that for sure this person hasn't done anything wrong with the money. It's very well possible that he has, but he's not telling us he has. And they provided a reasonable explanation for, for what's happening. So that if, if, if you want to pursue this further, then we, we have to look at, you know, bringing a court application to demand further financial disclosure and, uh, you know, perhaps engaging a professional like yourself, who's going to like really dig through the numbers to see what they tell us. And, you know, sometimes it's not worth it for the client to do something like that. So I suppose to answer your quick question, Kim, in a roundabout way, is it possible? Yes, it's possible. Should you do it? No, shouldn't do it. And like the, cause if you get caught, it's just, it's just so, so bad. And the more money it is, the worse it's going to be for you. We, we didn't talk about that. What happens if you get caught trying to do some kind of financial fraud? Well, uh, I mean, you, I guess uh, in the financial or in the family law context, you can talk about what happens. Uh, I, I don't think it's good, but I mean, uh, you know, you, you can up, end up in jail for something like that. Right. So, and, and, you know, I, I guess uh, what you said, Evan, you're, you're right. Like sometimes it's not, maybe not worth going through a full blown, you know, you know, forensic accounting exercise, but sometimes, sometimes it's obvious and there's some low hanging fruit. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, in this case with this uh, uh, fellow, I mentioned at the start of this uh, discussion, uh, who was defrauded out of, almost, I think it was like over half a million bucks. Like there were some things out there we could identify really well without even doing a lot of work that this guy would, like we could substantiate a charge pretty easily. Um, so, was, you know, sometimes there is, you know, you just kind of get, you pick the low hanging fruit and you go after that to, um, you know, establish that the other party is not, not credible. Right. And yeah. And then maybe that's all you need to do. So it's kind of just like, what is the, what is the scope of, you know, kind of what you're trying to prove out by hiring an expert. And if you're clear on that, maybe you can save some time. And it's not such a, an expensive exercise. It's just kind of, you know, identifying where, uh, you know, a misstatement may have been and, you know, proving that out. I think most of the time in the family law context, it's kind of funny because I think most of the time when it comes to finances, they all of a sudden give their ex-partner a ton of credit for sophistication when it comes to financial matters. Yeah. yeah. And it's just unlikely. It's just unlikely that this person would have the foresight to, to do it, to just get rid of those assets in such a way that you would have to go back years to find it evidence of it and that they did it in such a sneaky way that it would be, you know, it's like most of the time it's going to be like, you look at the bank statements and it's like, Oh, we were getting divorced. And now um, he transferred this $50,000 to his brother. And there's no explanation. Like most of the time it's going to be something like that because people are not that sophisticated. They're just, yeah you know, unless they're, they work, they do something like you do and they work with something like this all the time. You could probably figure out a good way to commit fraud because you've seen a bunch of ways and you know what people are looking for. Um, but be, beyond having that level of sophistication, like, you know, maybe if you're dealing drugs and you use the drug money somehow 
get it into account that no one knows about and buy Bitcoin with it. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's a scenario where, you know, trust is broken down and, you know, there's, there's been trust on, on, you know, different levels. And, you know, that person has just given trust to that person with the, the finances and, because the trust is bro- broken down in this area, it's also broken down on the financial front. Other, one party has more knowledge than the other, right? Mm, yeah. And uh, Most yeah. of the time you see this kind of situation where it has been the one party that's t- taking care of all the finances. And so, um, and, and like, maybe that's just kind of a public service announcement for people that, uh, uh, you know, in the situation where they're getting separated or, or maybe not yet, but things are not going well in the relationship, like financial transparency can go a long way. Uh, and not just about saving the relationship, like when the relationship breaks down, if you have that financial transparency, it's going to save you some hassle because if you've dominated the finances, you can't then complain when the other side has zero trust about what you've done with the finances. And now is like making the court process take a lot more time and effort like it's because you haven't been transparent about finances that's costing you now more money than it needs to. Even if there's like nothing that's wrong that's gone on because you're right, Darren, it's the, the trust is broken. And when they lack any knowledge whatsoever about the finances, they all, they're most of the time they're going to expect, they're going to suspect the worst. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is not to say that this doesn't happen though as well. Um, you know, I've been adjacent to a few cases where there's definitely been dissipation or some serious, um, I heard you reference reference helicopter parts. Heather, you referenced helicopter parts. I heard about that was Darren. (laughs) That was Darren. (laughs) Well, I happen to know secondhand about, someone who was trying to hide a helicopter in the, in the separation. And they like, <laughs> yeah, parted it out and tried to sell it, but it came. Yeah. And yeah, my point there was the, uh, the helicopter was on the books for $5,000. Right. And, and, and that, that's the right way to report it for accounting. Right. But maybe, yeah. maybe you could sell it for more than five grand. Maybe you could sell it for more than a used truck. Well, I, I don't know if I'd get in a, a $5,000 helicopter. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. I, I think what I've been kind of thinking about, about this conversation that underlies that idea of trust is that, you know, there's like trust between you and the other party when you're talking about divorce, but there's also a lot of trust between a business owner and their accountant, their bookkeeper, their employees, all of that kind of thing as well. So I have been involved in a case where the divorce led to the discovery of stuff that was going on within the company that was the bookkeeper causing problems and not doing proper accounting and money going out the back door. And, um, you know, I, I mean, fraud happening basically or theft from the company. Um, so, you know, as a business owner, um, or even as someone who is married to a business owner, even if this is not your jam and your most favorite subject, uh, it's probably important to, to um, 
you know, learn about these things, how a balance sheet works, what it looks like, why your accountant is putting this number on this side of the balance sheet and why they're reporting things this way so that you can monitor your own situation as well. Um, Because I think, yeah, there's just, there's a lot of different elements of trust. And and as Darren has pointed out, there's a lot of room and areas here where things can either have some subjectivity or opportunities for downright fraud to be happening. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of in organizations, it's about setting up controls. You know, for example, you don't have the same person issuing the invoice is writing the check and, mm. you know, just little things like that, right. Just yeah. setting, setting processes up um, and, and understanding where your exposure is. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's is there a good... place... Sorry, Evan, you go ahead. No, go ahead, Kim. I was, I was just, as soon as Darren brought that up, I was curious if there's a place a business owner can go to get a checklist of things that they should put in place. Like you did with the collaborative law association in terms of vendors does that exist? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. That's, um, you know, there's people who specialize. And like I said, within like the CFE profession, there's all kinds of different things, people doing different things uh, within this field. You know, there's people like internal auditors that are fraud examinations, just looking at areas where they can be ripped off. And uh, yeah, so there is definitely people that, that do that. You know, would our listeners go to that association to find tips? Is that a good place to visit? Oh yeah, the um, the ACFE website is uh, really good. They have uh, they actually have really good. Uh, well, they they um, they actually publish an article or uh, a magazine comes oh. out every uh, yeah on you know. So they've got they they have just really good resources for um, you know helping people that are, you know, trying to prevent fraud or detect fraud or, or whatever. And I, I, um, you know, they've got a whole library of PD courses and, um, you know, and so I'm, that's where I'm doing all my, my CPD right now is uh, through, through this organization. Cause the, the courses are really, um, like they're really user-friendly and convenient and interesting. And yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I think like what we've been talking about here for a lot of this is, like financial statements, how to read a financial statement. What are the different line items on a financial statement mean? And uh, another word for that is fundamental analysis, which I feel like, um, you know, that's a useful thing for any adult to really understand, to, to have some kind of, they don't have to be an expert like you are, Darren, about going way deep, but like having a, you know, a good understanding of what a balance sheet is and, a, and a finan- the financial statements in general and how to read them and what that means. Because like, yes, we've been talking about it in the context of companies, but like you have a personal balance sheet, right? Everyone like this applies to people, applies to countries, applies to companies, businesses. So um, if you are aware of what your own family's balance sheet looks like, like it would be good to know that even if you're not the one that's mainly taking care of the finances. In fact, in businesses, lots of people that are in the business and manage the business don't do the finances, but they read the financial statements so they can keep the person who does deal with the finances accountable. And so if you're the one in the relationship, that's not the money person. If you understand how to read uh, a financial statement, then you can uh, keep your partner accountable. 
That's so, right. And, you know, that kind of, you know, kind of falls into Kim's uh, world, you know, and, uh, you know, having your, you know, as part of wellness, you know, like having your financial house together no. is, you know, part of, you know, budgeting properly, like you pressure off, right? If you, if you got too much debt, you, you're just not mad your life in a way you're not healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's going to, it's going to be a problem. That's uh-huh. all. Yeah. Uh-huh. Are there any particular businesses or sort of revenue amounts that might be targeted by fraudsters? Um, is there sort of a, a perfect victim or a common type of victim that businesses, you know, might want to be concerned about and go, you know, looking for some more help in preventing this in their business? Well, I, I, I think it's everybody, but you know, it's funny. I, I was yeah. in to see my, my dentist a while ago and uh, my dentist is actually a lecturer or he's a professor at the, in the faculty of dentistry at the U of A. And he says, Oh, I should get you to come in and talk to like our class of graduating dentists, because apparently like, like dental offices are like, they get ripped off all the time. Uh-huh. You know, it's coming from, you know, somebody's a practicing dentist, right? So I, I, I think it's, it's, uh, you know, and you know, just in, you know, there was a big fraud at Grant McEwen where they, uh, somebody fell for a, it's called a phishing scheme where they, they send you a link or something. And, you know, people go onto this link thing. It's a bank website and they give their information away and then they get ripped off. But, uh, Grant McEwen sent money. They thought they were sending money to a contractor, and it was it actually ended up going to somebody else. So I remember that it was, it was like, uh, it was a lot of money, right? It was, it was over a million dollars. I can't remember exactly yeah. how much. Yeah. And I, and I think even as individuals, like it was 11.8, aside, 11.8 million. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and there's, that is happening a lot to just average people like these phishing mm-hmm. schemes where they get a text and it'll be a link. Oh, come, go here to get your money deposited in your account. People click it. And it's like, it's, yeah. it's like, it's a total scam, right? Mm-hmm. Law firms get hit with that too. They get, mm-hmm. what happens is people monitor, they hack into their email. And then right as a transaction is happening, they send a spoofed email um, to the law firm saying, Oh, actually send it, send the money to this account. We need to send it to this different account. And then, you know, so the lawyers due diligence is you never take due diligence that we have to perform on things like that to avoid this being, being victim to this fraud is that you never take instructions over email. You're, you're, if you're receiving payment instructions, you're checking the email to make sure that it is from the person. And even if it is, that doesn't mean it like they could be, the other person could be hacked. And so the person could actually be, the fraudster could be sending it from their email account. So that's not enough. So you make it a practice of taking instructions over the phone only and to a phone number that, you know, that you've called that you've had before that you've talked to the client before on. These are the kind of, these are like the only ways to avoid that from happening because you get instructions, you send out the wire transfer to that new account or you deposit it at the bank in, into that new account and that money's gone. Yeah. It's never coming back. Yeah. Yeah. So just it's, uh, it's everywhere, right? I know, Kim, I'm going to bring up one of your favorite topics, which is insurance. Does insurance cover fraud for businesses? Is that special coverage that you would need? Like, would Grant McEwen have been um, 
covered by insurance for something like this that happened? I mean, that's a pretty specific question, but generally speaking, can you get insurance or do you have any way of getting your money back? I, I assume that once it's gone, it's gone for the most part. I think there, I think you can get insurance. I, I can't really comment on that, but uh, um, I, I'm, I'm sure that there is. Cam? Well, I mean, so this is another professional we need to have on our program. Business insurance is different from the life and accident and sickness yeah. that I do. Uh, but they're like, it would probably be tied into maybe errors in um, and omissions in one line of, of business. Right. It might be tied into like a specific fraud insurance for another type of business. But uh, I I do not know. I can tell you what lawyers do, what lawyers have, but like that's very niche. Yeah. And we have a few uh, insurance providers and some that cover things like phishing fraud and, and cyber security um, or, or cyber insurance. Um, and of course, you know, if you fall subject to that, that fraud that I was just talking about, then, um, you know, you're going to have uh, our liability insurance will, will cover that because it's coming up as someone else's trust money. And so, but yeah, I mean, if you're just a normal person, I, probably not. Maybe if you're a business, you know, we need Kim's friend to come and tell us about that. Whoever her friend is. Yeah. Yeah. That, that whole cyber security. Uh, uh, if I was to start my career again, uh, I would probably go into that field. It's pretty interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, it's not too late. <laughs> I, I'm I'm older than I look. Just get another. We just need another COVID pandemic. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to get that accreditation. <laughs> yeah. When you were saying that, I thought I wonder if Kim was taking notes because Kim loves doing courses, and so <laughs> yeah. When you described what you went through, I thought Kim was like, "Ooh, that sounds great. I could do that. I don't have any time, but I can make it happen." Yeah. I think this is why Darren and I get along well when we go for coffee at the Italian center. There's we're on the same page, like gobble up, learn, get yeah. the information, give good answers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I feel like Kim probably completed half the course while listening to this podcast. She's already <laughs> registered. She did. Yeah, she's already <laughs> studied the first module. <laughs> no, people are going to think I'm a nerd. I'm not a nerd. I, I like I just like to learn. <laughs> Nerds Kim, are the best. I love you, nerds. You are, you are a nerd, but you're a cool nerd. <laughs> yeah, there's always something nerd. to learn, right? There's always something, and things are always changing. And mm. yeah. So, is there anything else that we that you wish we would have asked you about, Darren? No, it was good. I that this was a good discussion, and uh, yeah, I, I look forward to connecting on. Over a coffee or something with you guys. Yeah, now that COVID's over, we can do things like that. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. I, yeah. So, uh, yeah. No, that that I, I enjoyed that, and uh, congratulations on your your great podcast. Well, it just got a little bit better today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 really cool what you guys are doing. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation and I'm looking back at the, um, you know, the fraud tree and I feel like there's so many other branches yeah. that we could go down and discuss, but this has been such a really a fascinating conversation. 
And if you if you want another speaker to give you another perspective on the uh, on this this topic, I've got a really good person. Uh, he's a he's a he's a, a former Edmonton police officer, and uh, yeah. but now he just does fraud investigation on behalf of uh, like estates and uh, and he would give you a different perspective because because my my perspective is you know in the context of. Uh, you know, like my advisory practice, but getting somebody who's actually gone through and interviewed people and I, I think would be, uh-huh. so yeah, there's a lot of, a uh, lot of interesting uh, branches that this profession, you know, that, that a lot of interesting things people are doing in this, uh, this line of work. Well, send, send Heather his co- name and contact information and uh, we'd, we'd love to have him on. Yeah. yeah. And we need to go down more branches of that tree later, Darren. So yeah, you can come back on and <laughs> the family tree of fraud a little bit more. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think my takeaway today is trust no one and have some robust processes in place. Is that, is that the right takeaway? <laughs> How about you, Kim and Evan? What are you, <laughs> what are you taking away? I agree. Get educated on financial statements. Doesn't matter if you're the business owner or not. Finance is not too complicated for everyone to figure out. Um, I think that's a lot of times where people land. They think they won't ever be able to understand it and they will if they give it a shot. Yeah. I I agree with Kim, like become familiar with what, what financial statements look like. And like, talking about learning things like that's, that's only going to benefit you. You're never going to be like, Oh, I wish I'd never spent time learning how to read a financial statement. That was a waste. Mm-hmm. Like it's something just, it's so important and so connected to how the world works today. So um, to be able to perform fundamental analysis is pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, as, as lawyers, you know, you're, you're, you're trained in law, but you know, there's a big financial component to what you guys are doing in a lot of, cases, right? Yeah, absolutely. In our cases and in our lives, um, many of us are business owners as well as lawyers. So um, yeah, it's, it's important, important in lots of ways. Well, that's great. Thanks so much for coming on, Darren. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I look forward to staying in touch with you guys. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being our guest. We're looking forward to next time. Okay. See you. Take care. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited. 
member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the dales dissipates, declines because of he who turned water.